Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. Welcome, Michael, to this episode of Reflections. Hi, Terry. Thank you for having me again. I appreciate it. So today we're going to be reviewing five episodes that cover the Women, Gender, and Democracy series, starting with Jenna Spinelli in episode 103 of the Democracy Works podcast on COVID-19, the media, and elections. Episode 105, Jen Senko on the brainwashing of my dad, a documentary that she produced, and right-wing media's impact on our democracy. Episode 107 with Christina Hu on the importance of minority civic engagement in democracy. Episode 109 with Erin Villardi, a vote-run lead on its work to train and elect more women to elected office. And finally, episode 110 with Jordan Zaslow on women for the women on Women for the Win and Gender Equality in Government. Looking at these episodes in its entirety, the concept of women, gender, and democracy, before you heard any of these episodes, Michael, what were your thoughts around gender equality in government? Was this something that you believed in? Did you feel like this is an issue? Is this a problem that we, we need to address? Absolutely, because I've been aware that half of the population, of course, is female, and it, the government clearly does not represent the population, right? There should be a more even distribution of, of gender between politicians. So it's something I feel like I'm not the only one who saw, and it's pretty apparent. I feel that by having more of a representation of women in government, we would probably be able to have policies that are more inclusive of everybody. And that's actually what many of the guests have shared and confirmed. But, you know, but specifically, like if we were talking about the concept in general of just inclusivity and diversity, it is also something that in my interview with Jenna Spinelli of the Democracy Works podcast was uh, a topic that has been explored time and time again in her podcast with her guests around why inclusivity and diversity is necessary for a democracy and how when you have diverse voices, when you have people who are in elected office who represent the communities that they serve, that's actually more democratic because their lens of governing is one that cares about everyone's needs, not just their own. Right. But at the same time, it's one of the things that the population itself has to also be aware of our, our biases and our preconceptions when it comes to voting, because it seems like all the guests that you had sort of have alluded in one way or another that um, we may potentially view women differently um, when they're in office. So there is the impediment to gender equality in elected office is basically internalized and systemic sexism, structural sexism and misogyny, and how it plays out where for many people, like, you know, you, you and I probably have seen 
hundreds of photos since 2016 of Trump in various situations where he's in a room full of people and all the people making serious decisions are white men, probably of a certain age even, and a certain generation. And how those individuals, clearly, if they're making decisions around, let's say, women's bodies or around reproductive rights, they don't That's even right. know the physiology of what happens and they're trying to police what choices we make with our bodies. Absolutely. And it's, it's something that I hope that people just uh, get more informed about. So we make decisions based on our biases. And I feel that the more we talk about them, the more we realize where it is that we can improve. Because again, a lot of these biases come because we're not educated on it. And I feel like even me, I, I, I may continue to have some of these biases that that I want to learn more about and be able to become more aware about. It, I'm, I'm reading into well, racism, for example, and that's something that I realized that, oh, wow, I make decisions based on my, my sexism and my internal racism. I think that if we talk about it and we have a conversation, we're able to more accurately address it. And I'm glad you brought, brought that up because I, th- I also think it's important that we all recognize that all of us, no matter our gender, our race, our ethnic background, um, we all, because we are socialized under a white male supremacist patriarchy, we all either are shaped by white supremacy and male supremacy and sexism and racism or internalized sexism or internalized racism. And so none of us are immune from it. It's just the degree to which we are aware of the ways that these biases shape or inform our behaviors and decisions and thoughts that matter because then we can actually be preventive and preemptive in letting those biases turn into decisions that perpetuate inequities. So back to Jenna Spinelli. As an example, one of the resources that she shared in our conversation was an interview with a journalist named Lewis Raven Wallace. Either she interviewed him or one of her guests read the book and recommended it. But I actually read Lewis Raven Wallace's book, The View from Somewhere, Undoing the Myth of Journalistic Objectivity after my conversation with her, and I really loved it. And one of the biggest takeaways is how, as a journalist, the concept of both sidism is actually a construct that is there to serve right-wing propaganda. Being objective isn't an outcome necessarily. It doesn't have to be an outcome. Being objective as a journalist can be part of the process. So making sure that you're fact-checking, making sure that you're giving opportunities to cover the, the, the argument in its complexity in a nuanced way and provide people with an opportunity to comment on your story, making sure that you're thorough in your analysis and research, that is part of objectivity in journalism. But objectivity doesn't necessarily have to manifest itself in giving time to opposing ideas. Let's just say going back to the you know cl- climate change debate, you don't need to give sides to climate deniers, climate crisis deniers, and scientists. If 90% of the scientific community believes in science, you know, we, we, it's okay to put forth what's truthful. 
And that can be a form of objectivity. And then you can cover the deniers by inquiring into the context in which they have formed as a response to climate change and the crisis. On the topic of both sides, I think Jenna Spinelli mentioned, uh, I mean, it fits right into the uh, topic of voter fraud, right? Where, um, where there's a lot of people that feel that there's that voter fraud is going to be rampant if we, um, we do voting by mail, uh, which is something that has already been done. Uh, and it has, it's, it, it's, it, it is already, uh, it's just a, a matter of, of expanding it. So giving both sides and saying, hey, listen, there's a chance that there's going to be massive voter fraud, uh, because here are some examples, then you're giving, the, if you give the same, uh, even though that's very rare, like it's not, that's not something that would probably be a significant issue by giving the people that platform to spew that kind of misinformation, um, it misinforms other people and kind of gives gives the impression that, yeah, well, maybe we shouldn't do this. There's there's that opposite to it. And, and it, it's something that we have to be as informed as possible about. I agree. And to your point with voter fraud, I, I don't remember the statistics that Jenna cited, but if at all, it's under 1% in terms of actual voter fraud. So basically the scope and the severity of the problem is so low that the concern around making it something that's more widespread and available to all of us, and and not not just to people in the military, but also certain states like Washington State, everybody has the right if they wanted to, I believe, to vote by mail. And so there's a cost-benefit analysis that everyone has to make with regard to certain issues. And the very attack that the cost outweighs the benefits is in itself manipulative. Even if it was more than 1%, even if fraud was was more rampant, I don't think that there is enough evidence to show that it would benefit one side over the other. It feels like it's probably more harmful to people in general because it would disincentivize people from voting. Right. So that's actually just the topic with regard to mail, mail-in ballots, absentee ballots. But if we're going to talk about voter fraud as a uh, issue, Republicans definitely engage in it more in terms of voter suppression. And there's been lots of examples in the news in recent years of the elections where there's been coordinated efforts in red states to not just suppress and intimidate Democratic voters from going to the polls, but also in terms of trying to hide uh, or not fund reforms that address hacking into voting machines that secure voting. There's been Republican opposition to reforming the system to make it more fair and more accessible. And so in that way, I would say that voter fraud does benefit the Republicans more because they're engaging in it more in various tactics. Right. So yeah, in that way, it sounds like uh, Republicans would benefit more from voter suppression. So I hope that I hope that people realize this and it encourages people to vote more. Yeah. And so the idea that I wanted to share with you and get your opinion on is this term called, quote unquote, colonization of doubt that I read about in Lewis Raven Wallace's book. 
Uh, I can't remember who coined the phrase originally, but I encourage everyone to read that book. It was very, very informative. And I love that phrase because, you know, so much of what we talk about in both in the podcast and in the titles of many of the episodes with our guests, the word decolonize shows up, right? Decolonize sex work, decolonize wealth, and and so uh, decolonize fashion. And I think we need to decolonize doubt and confusion because there, the, there's systematically one group of people, which is those on the right, who are purposely trying to create a, a whole population of people who are basically uh, non-thinking, not critically thinking puppets. And that goes to our next episode with Jen Senko, the producer of the documentary, The Brainwashing of My Dad. You saw that film, you know, in our Endangered Collective Flick Night. So first, let's talk about the film before we talk about the episode. Absolutely. Um, I love the film. I actually did see it twice. So just uh, for those of you who haven't seen it briefly, it's basically about a woman who documents her father that throughout the years, he was watching a lot of right-wing television, specifically Fox News and um, things like Rush Limbaugh, where um, this kind of media influenced her father's behavior to the point that he changed not just of his opinions, but his behavior towards his family and his overall demeanor was affected, was affected in such a way that it was, it was harmful. He was, he seemed more aggressive towards his family, his wife and his daughter. Little by little, she described the effects, the, 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 how, how we got to this point and how a lot of this uh, right-wing talk began manifesting itself in today's society. So, oh, actually, and she also mentioned that other people, other people also experience family members who, who have gone through these changes. And so it, it, it's, it's something that's prevalent in today's society, and we should watch out for it and understand it so we can see what kind of strategies they use to, to try to brainwash our family members and potentially ourselves. Yeah, and I love the fact that, you know, we didn't delve into this too much in my interview with Jen, but in her film, she definitely goes uh, into greater detail around the history of media regulations and how deregulating the, the media producers and content providers have given them almost carte blanche to use tactics that basically dumb down the American mind so that you are responding emotionally to the stimuli in front of you and basically, you know, in a way like engaging in mind control so that you are at your most basic level, almost Pavlovian, responding to the cues that they give. And in fact, Jen says, I think she says this in our interview as well as the film, that some of these right-wing media pundits like Rush Limbaugh he'll end on a Friday with a comment. I don't remember exactly what the comment was, but something like, don't think about it, wait till Monday, and then and, and then you can start thinking again. And so there was actually explicit instructions for the listeners to not use their mind, to not challenge, to accept wholeheartedly without question. And so that's actually not just the outcome, but also the intent. Yeah, so basically this, this whole like, 
don't worry. If you have something that makes you feel uncomfortable, wait until Monday and I will let you know what to think about, like how to think about it. A lot of the things that come up in our everyday life, I feel like we like to do here, right? We always want to question. And if we don't know something, I know one of the things that you do is, is find an expert on the specific topic to be able to, to, to really find out what an expert would have to say about it. They do the opposite. One of the other things that Jen mentioned was that they used emotion, like that anger. Like, this is not your fault. This is the other people's fault. This is, the, this, is, this is something that you have to be angry about. And I feel that based on the people around me, that when it comes to emotion, it trumps logic. And not only is it intentional, but it's, it's something, it's not just a one-time tactic, but it's an intentional strategy that's long-term to suppress dissent, collective dissent. And so right. the idea that, and part of what connects the people who are listening to right-wing news, pundits, and radio is that Jen said, this connection of sexism and misogyny, you know, that they are the ones who started, you know, throwing out words like quote-unquote feminazi. So, you know, making anybody who's a proponent of women's rights and women's equality, someone that seems crazy and extremist, even though they are the ones who are actually, you know, extremists in their views. And just using like those tactics like gaslighting and attacking anybody who's speaking the truth. And, and Jenna Spinelli in particular had an episode where she talks about the importance of experts at how part of the way we chip at democracy and undermine democracy is to accept people who are not experts on a topic and giving them authority and giving their words weight to talk about a certain topic. So for example, with COVID, no one should be giving advice around COVID unless you're a doctor, a physician at the very least. And this undermining of experts in a way, you know, intellectualism is actually harmful to democracy. Right. What I hear also is like when they say, oh, this is a person, for example, they might say a doctor. Now, a doctor could be could mean many things. But when you're talking about like broad topics, like things that deal with statistics, the experts in that case would probably be researchers. So those are the people who would more likely be experts on, on, on topics like that. And I feel like especially the right wing gives a lot of a lot of weight to people who are who have these strong opinions. Now, one of the things that Jen mentioned in her in her movie was that Rush Limbaugh was passionate in what he said, but what the way he said it, it was with this authority, with this confidence that made other even if it was wrong, it was said wrong, it was said with such confidence that people uh, fell for these these opinions that were strong to the but they were just built there to to brainwash, and it's not. It, it didn't come from a place of like true authority, not not from an expert. Yeah, and I think also it's important to to tie this all in to the history of the deregulation of media and its connection with profit making, right? And so the idea is that you know the more you can be vertically integrated as a media company, you know, owning. Uh, producing the content, owning the distribution channels, and making sure that your audience is captive so that they can pay the enormous, possibly monopolistic rates that you're charging, 
they're stuck and they have no other content. And so they're going to, you know, watch and listen to your advertisers and buy the things that your advertisers are asking for, regardless of whether or not they have alignment with the values. And so you, you basically have no choice in that scenario. And when you don't have choice, that's no longer a democracy. Right. And it's just difficult because a lot of people don't see these, um, these tactics that are, are being used on them. And um, just like we spoke about with coercion, um, abusers use these tactics like isolation, making the, the, the person, the listener in this case, feel isolated and, and create doubt and confusion, right? So it, it's, it's these abuser tactics that are used in order to create the, this, the, this, this kind of brainwashing to, to change people's minds. Exactly. And I'm glad you drew the parallel between course of control and the use of news and information to basically enslave someone's mind. Right. And, uh, and, and so when, you're, when you've enslaved someone's mind, whatever you say to them, they're going to agree to. And if you tell them to do certain things and get angry about certain things, they're going to do that. And I've known people in my life, and I'm sure you have too, who have exhibited these kind of, I guess, symptoms of brainwashing, what I would call. Um, I've had a coworker that would spew out a lot of these talk, talking points that are pretty, are, are pretty uniform. I, I feel like one of the things that uh, Jen mentioned was how the Republicans would create these think tanks in order to come up with certain talking points, and then they would be distributed throughout their media outlets, and thus it would trickle down to people, and they would be using so it, it, it's something that, that I've seen in person and sad to say, and it's really hard to change a person's mind like that. So I do feel that unless you could somehow take away the quote unquote abuser or the person who, or, or, or this, this source of, of um, misinformation, it's much more difficult to uh, change a person's mind or get them out of this state of brainwashing. You don't have to necessarily attack the source. You could also check, attack the distri- distribution channels, right? So, so, you know, to your point, Jen talked about the growth of the right wing engine over the past 50 years, which includes not just think tanks, but and not just media organizations, as you said, but also purchasing endowments at universities, making these right wing ideologies legitimized in university settings and being able to give them give uh, nurture minds and people, young people, to adopt them and to go out in their careers and to continue to propagate them. And so there's this whole machine where they're creating these ideas, they're investing in them, they're investing in youth t- to have careers and jobs based on replicating them. And people have asked me, well, why can't we do that on the left? Why can't progressives do that? Because progressives believe in freedom. We don't believe in creating a machine where we're like right. brainwashing the left, you know, even into progressive ideas. We believe that's the whole definition of freedom. We want people to, to, to be able to question things and, and have freedom. I, I, I completely agree. We don't want to manipulate them. And I feel like that's what they're doing. They're doing manipulation. And, and that would be contrary to freedom. I think um, like one of the things that Jen mentioned was that she felt that they took the vulnerable, like they would they would target specific people, white males, right? She mentioned um, 
she said something along the lines of like, my father was vulnerable and she felt that her, his insecurity as a white male was attacked basically. And that's the vulnerability that they find in, in, in that population. And again, since white males do have a lot of power and you're attacking their insecurities, it, it, it then it becomes easy to exploit that and, and cause them to, to have this anger and this rage. I just want to be clear. You're talking about the insecurities you're talking about is their, their vulnerability to manipulation because of how strictly they police themselves to follow traditional gender roles and how they define themselves by gender. And these, you know, going back to Martin Hultman's, you know, interview around the um, industrial breadwinner ideology, that they define themselves by a certain way. And if society changes and culture changes, and they feel that their role in that new space is diminished, or their power is diminished, or challenged, and they have to share, then they act out. Right. They don't want to. They don't want to lose that power that they have, or that they they well, yeah, that they have. So one of the ways that um, has been suggested that we can dismantle these systems or these tactics, of course, is through, number one, transparency. So making these systems transparent. So getting, not only getting rid of corporate money in elections, in government, but also making it clear who the corporations are that is supporting what issues and which candidates so that as citizens, we can decide whether or not we want to support those corporations. So it came out recently, a lot of people, the whole Goya campaign, you know, that right. he, he, the founder is a Trump supporter. And so lots of people started saying boycott Goya. So that's a way, like if we all knew that Goya was supporting Trump and his policies, which is shocking given how <laughs> Trump is so yeah. anti-immigration, we would have not purchased all those beans before the quarantine. Of course. And I, I was shocked to find that out too. And uh, so one of the things that uh, really annoyed me was the whole Ivanka thing where she promoted Goya beans, uh, which is something that is, is in her position. I think it's ethically incorrect for her to do, to, to, to use her power like that too, for the financial gain of, of an organ of a company. That's definitely true. She violated ethical standards with regard to using political office for corporate gain. But no, none of them in, the, in that administration has followed any ethical guidelines or rules, obviously. Right. And I, what's sad is that they don't get penalized for it. There's no accountability. Like, this wasn't the first time. I think Trump has done this before. Of course, every day there's probably something. That's a great point, Michael, this accountability issue. Like transparency is such a fundamental part of democracy, but also accountability. When something is not going right, that there's a mechanism to correct it, to hold those who are engaged in abusive power uh, to account so that we can protect our institutions and norms. And I think that that's a great segue into our next episode with Christina Hu on the importance of minority civic engagement to democracy because she worked so hard to create engagement in the Asian American and specifically the Taiwanese American population to educate 
that population around why it's important to check that they're Taiwanese American in the census and why it's important to actually fill out the census. So what are your thoughts around the census as a tool for democratic participation and civic engagement? It's important. It's something that I help my parents, for example, to fill out because they they just don't know, right? So I, I did help my parents fill out the census, and it's important for us to be aware of our population so we can uh, serve our the, our population as best as we can. It's something that we should be doing more of. By serving, you mean making sure that the diversity in our communities are accounted for accurately, so that we can get the resources. You mean the public allocation of funds. Right, so we can allocate the resources to where they belong. Uh, and and why couldn't they? I know they speak Spanish, but why couldn't they do it on their own? Because they have census forms in different languages. Yes, they do. They just aren't. I felt like they didn't understand why, so I had to explain it to them. And also, I feel it's just easier to fill it out online. You know, you get the paper, you put it in online, and instead of mailing it, it's. it's it's just easier. So that's why I did it for them. They don't know how to use a computer as easily. So I did that. So I'm curious when you saw the explanation that was given around why people should fill out the census, do you think it was thorough enough when you were translating for them that they understood or did you have to add your own language and explanation? Honestly, I don't, I think they understood It's So that's one of the things that it takes a while for me to explain to them because their initial reaction is, why, why do they need to know who we are? I think they, they, they feel that, and I, I hear this because they said it before, they feel like it's a chance for them to be discriminated against. I, I feel as immigrants, as, 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 uh, as a child of an immigrant, I could take a look at my parents and see a lot of their fears. And I kind of get it. I understand because they want to be part of the United States. And I think in their mind, they want to be kind of like what Christina mentioned, where the, some Asians want to be white adjacent, right? Like, I think my parents want the same thing, essentially. So it's sort of what they think is, is, is being American is being white. And I think that's, that's where it comes from. In a way, they're, they're reluctant to fill out the, the bubble with regard to race or ethnicity because... Right. They're afraid that that's going to be used against them, even though they're citizens, that yeah. it's going to be kept in some database somewhere that someone's going to use to discriminate against them in the future in some other unknown. That's exactly it. And again, I explained it to them and I filled it out for them and I explained it to them that it's for the allocation of resources, also for, for representation. I did mention that and explained it to them, but it's it's something that they don't necessarily are they're not really thinking about. They, they, they come from a different place, from a different school of thought. So do you feel like you were successful? Do they understand now? I hope so. I try to speak to them as much as I can about uh, my views, about politics, and making sure that they, that they are as aware as possible. There's just so much. And, and I try to talk to my family in general, not just my parents, about issues that, they, that I feel are important. Um, they, they, they're just not necessarily aware of, of like the policies and things that, that I feel are important. Don't they have access to like Spanish TV or Spanish newspapers? Yes, they do. My mom listens to the news more. But again, even the Spanish news and news in general, I feel it doesn't always go in depth. I feel that a lot of times media is more, a lot of the news is, is there to, to get more views, to get more, to, to get people to watch 
more than to inform. So when I listen to the news, it's, it's more like a lot, I do listen to a lot of independent media and I do a, a lot of reading, which is something that I feel like my parents don't quote unquote have time for. It's not something that they are as passionate about. I, I feel like they get more information from conversations that we have. Well, I'm glad that they're open to listening to you. So you're such an important resource in their lives, it seems. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. But, you know, there's so many nuances. And, and I think, you know, just there's so many things when it comes to politics that people have different opinions on. And I feel like if my parents were more informed or were more curious about it, they would have their own opinions and be able to make a better uh, decision. This doesn't just apply to them as Spanish-speaking immigrants. Obviously, the whole premise of Jen's brainwashing of my dad is that all of us are vulnerable to being manipulated and to not thinking, and that there's this instinctive desire to follow. And thinking takes effort. And also, thinking is dangerous, quote-unquote dangerous, if it makes you a target of ridicule or not being a part of a group. If your status of belonging in a group is at risk because you're questioning ideas and challenging, then that's going to be something that a lot of people, I think, don't have the wherewithal to want to confront. You're right. Now that you mentioned this, the idea of, of, of being ridiculed, um, I, I, I was told the story of a, a very close friend of mine who had an aunt who said, I'm going to vote for Trump recent, recently. And her reasoning that she wanted to vote for Trump was because she wanted to get another stimulus check. And she felt that, well, Trump gave me a stimulus check. Therefore, if I vote for Trump, then I, I might get another one. Now, she was completely misinformed. But the bad thing is that she was ridiculed by her family for saying something like that. And I think, I think it's, uh, it's that fear of being ridiculed that shuts down a conversation like that, you know? So like, I, 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 I understand that what she said came from a place of, of not knowing, but, or a lot of times if we don't come, if we don't address that in, in a way that's welcoming and open, then, then it, it could be counterproductive. So did you have an opportunity to, uh, to correct that misconception? that the stimulus check, in fact, is for Democrats would be more and more frequent. <laughs> that's actually that's actually the policy and the platform of the Democrats, that we care about the collective and we're not like just skimming off, you know, the top to give to the rich. Right. But then you would have to get into the whole reason of I, I'm pretty sure she doesn't understand that there is a two party system. Right. I'm pretty sure so she doesn't. So you didn't have that like, conversation with her, in other words. I, I didn't have that conversation. It was not my aunt. It was someone that, that was close to me and told me this. So, um, so I was told that she was ridiculed for saying something like that. And she felt bad. And I think that if, if, if you do something like that, it'll probably withdraw, make that person withdraw more. I think it's important for a person like that to, be inclu to, to, to include them in conversations and try to hopefully inform them in a way that they don't feel ridiculed. I'm pretty sure that if she was informed and, and she knew a little bit more about the way that government works, maybe she would look back and say, oh, well, I shouldn't have said that. Of course, of course, if you uh, are, are supporting progressives in general, you would probably get more of a stimulus check and that Republicans are counterproductive.
but again, to the to the person who knows nothing about politics, they see a check and it says Trump. Therefore, Trump equals check. That means more Trump. But that's like more- so. I don't even know what to say. That's like I don't even think a first grader would draw that conclusion. Or you know, mommy equals ice cream uh, because she's the only one who's gotten me ice cream. Like no, like mommy doesn't always give ice cream. Maybe you, she only gives ice cream when you when you behave or you play well with the family pet. It's not like so rigid. Like to have that such a simplistic perspective, I can't even imagine. So, so look, I think when a person has just the surface, that's not even a surface level understanding. I think that it's it's just you're not listening to the news. You're not really paying attention or you hear the news, but you don't understand what's going on. You think, well, this is the leader of this country. This person must have some court, some sort of credibility. Therefore, therefore, they put probably want what's best for the country because I feel like a, a, a person who has a surface level understanding of everything, like that's probably how. But they that's think. naivete. I understand. I understand. But I don't. To them, it's all noise. Like, oh, Democrats versus Republicans. They don't like each other. And I'm not. I don't identify as a Democrat or a Republican. I don't. I don't like politics. That's nothing that, that I care about. So, but look, what I do care about is money. And I see that twelve hundred dollars. Well, that's a lot of money. I want more of that. And this says Trump. I, if I don't care, if I don't know what's going on, and I don't know what's going on in the background, I, I do understand where she comes from. Okay, so let me ask you this. Did your friend whose aunt this was take yes. any time to pull her aunt aside and provide yes. a deeper explanation? Afterward, she understood, and she corrected herself. She, this was explained to her afterward. But I'm saying initially, she was ridiculed for what she said. Now she understands, did it incentivize her to want to learn more? Because politics is this word that people put over there, right? That they right. they think doesn't have to do with them if they just do their job and follow the law. Um, right. When in fact, everything in our lives is determined by politics. Because if politics determines policy, which determines how money is spent, what programs and activities are important to our communities, how it's distributed, who gets access and who doesn't. Oh, absolutely, yes. And, and this is something that, again, I didn't follow up to see what, what, what's going on with her, but it's a conversation that takes, takes a while to, to open up and then have them also open to listening that, to that. Like, for example, one of the things that you mentioned in this episode was uh, Andrew Yang, which in general, I didn't think Andrew Yang was so bad, but then when listening to your point of view, I, I, I see where you're coming from. Although UBI is something that I still think is not that bad of a policy. I didn't criticize UBI. That wasn't what I said about Andrew Yang. My criticism, I said three things. I said, one, he, he brings up UBI without looking at system, systemic reasons for poverty. And so that's problematic because you're just dealing right. with the symptoms and not the cause. Right. From a policy perspective, it's not going to address the problem long term. The second is going back to not recognizing systemic reasons that impact poverty. That includes structural racism and sexism and all these other isms. And and that's why you have racist housing policy impact and racist economic policy and lending policy keeping 
communities of color from being able to access capital, for example, right? Like the PPP loan that was part of the CARES Act has now been reported widely did not get to minority-owned businesses. It was distributed to Trump and his cronies, mainly, or a lot of big companies, you know, with already access to capital and who didn't need it. And so the point is, that was my first issue with Andrew. The second issue was the whole Washington Post op-ed that he wrote with regard to COVID and how, you know, we just need to basically, it was a very internalized racist op-ed. I don't know if you read it. I, I didn't, but I will. To address COVID, Asian Americans just need to hunker down and be patriotic by doing XYZ as if there's a formula for patriotism, as if speaking out and challenging what is not working is not patriotic. And by definition, activism is patriotic because you you are not only hopeful that things can change, but you're actually working actively to make it change for the better. And the third thing, I think I addressed it in this episode. If not, then I certainly did in the social media platforms. When he had tweeted months ago, I think this was last year even. Uh, Oh, no, no, this was the beginning of the year when Andrew Yang tweeted at the beginning of the year with regard to the impeachment that even after Trump leaves office, he shouldn't be indicted. I was like, what the F? (laughs) Oh, wow. That's horrible. (laughs) So So, so nothing to do with UBI. (laughs) Okay, fair enough. All right. So I'll take that back. But this is what I'll say. I I feel like he did bring something good to the conversation. I'll say this. I I think uh, Andrew Yang was a positive. I think um, when you hear Bernie, you hear his policy of Medicare for all. You know, I think I think like that policy is very tied to Bernie. When you hear Andrew Yang, I think you bring the idea of UBI. And I think that was something that he brought to the table. So I don't think I don't think Andrew Yang was going to win. I don't know if he thought he was going to win, but I, 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 I don't think in general people thought he was going to win. But this idea, which is like simple and catchy, was hopefully was is hopefully brought into whoever. Well, obviously, in this case, Biden, whoever the, the, the potential nominee for the Democratic Party will be. I think I think like these ideas, like at least the idea of Medicare for all is in Biden's platform. And the idea of UBI hopefully is something that. Again, it, it got it, it was a positive thing that went into the conversation. So I think overall, Andrew Yang was a was 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 a positive. Well, I mean, he definitely was with regard to representation because he was the first Asian American on a national platform that really was consistently on the stage in the debates representing us physically, right? He had a physical presence. Now, obviously, Kamala Harris is also Asian American, but she hadn't embraced that part of her identity until like literally a few weeks before she dropped out when she filmed a, uh, I think it was like a dosa or some, some video with Mindy Kaling, you know, and then she wanted to like make sure that she had credibility with the Indian American community who didn't even know who Kamala Harris was because she never ever up until recently, you know, like uplifted her Indian American identity and heritage. And so that actually is really offensive to me so much so that I actually forgot that she was Asian American up there. People keep thinking about, you know, Andrew Yang. Right. But yeah, get so I, I think I think it's fine. Like UBI is fine. It's a great idea, but you can't talk about UBI unless you're going to be talking about the forces that make it necessary, which is the rampant sort of abuse of our 
our laws and policy that allow corporations to have personhood and to buy their way into every aspect of our lives and have basically immunity to any anything, right? And Trump's trying to do that now with COVID. Like he wants, he had a proposed a five-year deal so that corporations could not be sued and not have liability if their employees are asked to come back for five years and they get sick. I mean, like we, we don't need corporations to have the same level of protections as law enforcement in our country, which have qualified immunity. And that's essentially the level of power imbalance that we have with corporations. And so UBI is great, but it's a symptom of a problem of corporate greed and tax policy and other economic policy that allow for rampant income inequality. And, and so we need to address that and fixing, giving people universal basic income has to come from somewhere. It can't come from nowhere. (laughs) And so if, if we're paying ourselves because we're working to the bone and need two jobs so that the next generation can have UBI, that's not going to be helpful. It needs to be coming fairly distributed from corporations where corporations are paying more in taxes and the wealthy are paying more in taxes. Yeah, absolutely. But again, that's not the Republican way of thinking. So if this continues this way, it's only going to get worse. Let's let's talk about the last two episodes, Erin Villardi of Vote Run Lead and Jordan Zaslow of Women for the Win. Both of them have their own nonprofits that are targeted towards helping to get more women in elected office. Erin uh, works on helping to train and elect more women. And Jordan's organization works on creating the media uh, advocacy and the campaigns to make sure that they have the airtime and the messaging to get them to win. And, right. and, and what? how relevant do you think these two things are to one another, the media as well as working together in training and electing women? Yeah, they go together. I mean, that's why it's best to talk about this, about both episodes together, because they go hand in hand. Despite the the, the similarities, I think Erin has a different uh, political view on, on the candidates and, and a different way of, I, I think she wants to be more inclusive. We'll take that back. I, I feel that, I feel that their aid, their politics do, are, are, are a little bit different, but more, she wants to, everybody to run, right? This, this is not something that, like her goal is to make sure that women have a voice. And I think that's, that's admirable. I think it's, um, I, I think the, the advice that she gives to women is very helpful and, 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 and the resources that she provides are an overall positive to the society. Were you surprised when Erin shared that some of the challenges that they address in their training centers around women's self-esteem and self-perception and confidence and that that's a positive outcome that comes out of the training? Confidence is something that's tricky because it's not something necessarily that could be measured. And and so so even though it can't be measured, I think it's a really good thing that if they feel more confident, right, that, that that's a positive outcome. I think Jordan also, also mentioned it when uh, she was talking about how older women display more confidence, quote unquote, right? It's something more like um, that men don't necessarily, in, who are in that position, don't necessarily have to deal with. So I do think that that's maybe a barrier 
that especially a lot of young women have that are going into politics. So I, I think that's an overall positive outcome. And, you know, I, I want to also have us address it's when more women, when more women are in office and positions of power, when we're addressing equity in elected office, part of the reason we're doing so, as Erin said, is because the policies that women bring are more inclusive, right? That was the first thing that you mentioned. And right. some of those policies include making sure that women have access to reproductive rights and that there's healthcare and envir environmental policy that protects and helps everyone. But one thing we didn't talk about is when women are in office, for example, the people who are gonna be chosen to fill our courts, the federal court positions, those judgeships matter because when you're relying on a system that is going to be fair to the underdog, and if one side, one party, which is the Republican Party, bases its ideology on basically, you know, those in power, staying in power and exploiting their power, whether it be corporations or the rich or whatever, then that's going to be a problem. And we're going to feel that later on in society, right? And so one of the, the um, questions I want to ask you, because I know you, you saw this too, is, you know, these positions don't just touch upon judgeships, it touches upon and follows through throughout our local communities in terms of district attorneys, et cetera. And, and so we both saw the Jeffrey Epstein documentary on Netflix, and we saw that there's so many people who were now part of the Trump, or formerly part of the Trump administration, but Alex Acosta. Right. Played a pivotal role in making sure that Jeffrey Epstein had no accountability and could get a slap on the wrist for all of the atrocious things that he had engaged in, that he admitted to. And, and, and so that's why equity matters. That's why having women in power matters, not just because it's going to generate better outcomes for COVID, like the prime minister of New Zealand, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? And bring us back <laughs> to normality sooner, but also because when it comes to accountability in our system, we care about it because our philosophy is around making sure that women and other people's voices are represented. And that concept of equality is very closely tied to accountability. Right. And one of the things that Erin mentioned is that you don't want to just have diversity for diversity's sake. You want to have diversity for there to be a diversity of thought, right? A diversity of new ideas, a diversity of policies that are going to be helpful for everyone. And I think that that's, that's the goal of, of both representatives. And, and I think both are equally as important because to be able to to give the give women a path in order for, for those policies to happen, so to hold people accountable, and at the same time to make them more, uh, I would say, marketable through directing their um, their their media presence. Both of them are important. But yes, I, if if we could somehow get more women to be able to um, hold these men accountable. So, did you happen to see? I know this just happened yesterday. The news yesterday and today around Judge Salas in New Jersey, who was whose son was murdered. Yes, and her husband. Yes. 
Mm-hmm. So that I posted about that because Judge Salas worked on a whole bunch of controversial cases, but most recently she was assigned the case Epstein. for Do- Deutsche Bank. Yes. Yeah. It seems really my friend, our mutual friend asked me today, if she's someone at that level with such a controversial case, and we know Epstein was quote unquote suicided, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's, oh uh, yeah. And now Jelaine uh, Maxwell has no, is not out on bail. And who, who knows when she's going to be, yeah, who knows when she's going to be suicided as well. So my, our mutual friend asked me today, why didn't this judge, first of all, why is she accepting packages from FedEx people? And why didn't she have protection and security? And I said, nobody has that these days, because there's no money. You know, we, we're like, we, we're dealing with deficits all around because of our healthcare crisis and economic crisis. And, and clearly, people weren't doing enough with Epstein when he was in jail at the detention center. Right. And so for her as a judge to be given a case that deals with Epstein's money and Deutsche Bank, that's a little bit more f- further removed than, let's say, Jelaine G- Maxwell. Like she's not right. presiding over Jelaine Maxwell's criminal case. I think that person may have more to worry about, assuming Jelaine is still alive for the trial. Yeah, assuming that, and that's, that's a big assumption. I really, it, it's scary. We're living in a really, really scary time for us to see that people that are that could possibly do something for for the hopefully for the victims may not necessarily be safe and i I really hope that we as a society can collectively speak out about this and have these conversations to make sure that at least if if we can't prevent a death like that that we can at least call attention to it and and not let it go silent and that is a great summary for the series on women, gender, and democracy, and why it is not just a philosophical, theoretical concept of having gender equality as a prerequisite to, to democracy, but it is literally a life and death situation for women and women's rights and the safety of women and children using the Epstein case as a metaphor for why we all need to participate in democracy so that everybody up and down, left and right in our system are people who with integrity, who follow the law, who interpret the law correctly, who enforce the law, and are doing so without intimidation and coercion and without fear of death. I hope so. I I hope we can move towards that ideal closer and closer. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Terry. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by CanDoIt Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join CanDoIt Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.